And if you would turn in your copy of the scriptures to the seventh chapter of the book of Exodus. It's right there at the beginning of the Old Testament, second book of the Bible. You can't look uh, anywhere at media these days, whether it's print material or on your computer or listening on the radio without knowing, uh, hearing the word war, violence, battles going on everywhere throughout this planet. Serious, serious things are happening on the face of this globe right now. As we look at the chapter 7 of the book of Exodus, we see something similar. And, and as I'm looking at this, I think what we have been doing so far is preparing for this particular time. And what unfolds right now is the battle. We will begin to see with these plagues as God battles with Satan on a very, very interesting battlefield with all sorts of different levels of warfare going on. In Exodus 7, though, the sovereignty of Yahweh the Lord is on display in multiple levels. He creates roles and he assigns tasks. He orchestrates participants and their events. He foresees and determines outcomes and he uses weak but obedient men as well as his enemies all for the display of his power and glory. So demonstrative is God's work on the pages of Exodus that centuries later, the Apostle Paul used this as one of the key arguments to prove the sovereignty of God. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 9, For the scripture says to the Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Let's pray as we begin to look at chapter 7. Heavenly Father, we uh, come to you this morning. Thank you, Father, for the moments of praise and worship we've had together this morning in your word and singing and hearing songs and, and offering thanksgiving. Lord, uh, please anoint this time with your spirit that you would speak through your word and you would teach us more about who you are. Lord, we are, are very frail, fragile, mortal people. We have a very difficult time giving you the praise and the honor that you deserve. So please help us, Lord. I pray that you would speak and you would comfort, you would encourage, you would convict, and your word would be like you have told us it is. It is living and powerful sharper than any two-edged sword, and it pierces, it penetrates, even to divide soul and spirit and joints and marrow. And it judges the thoughts and intents of our hearts. Lord, please work in us this morning. Please overcome my inabilities, and um, please work mightily to show yourself. In your name we pray, amen. Verse one, so the Lord said to Moses, see, I have made you as God to Pharaoh, and Aaron your brother shall be your prophet. You see, Pharaoh would have immediately identified with this use of a spokesman. 
His own mode of operation was to have human representatives that declare all of his commands to his subjects. As one writer indicated, this preserved a sense of distance between himself and his people and it thus reminded them of his supposedly divine status. End quote. So with this tactic that God gives to Moses, Pharaoh will see Moses as his rival and his nemesis. He would view Moses as if he were actually viewing Yahweh. And here is what you say, Moses. This is what God tells him. You shall speak all that I command you, and Aaron your brother shall tell Pharaoh to send the children of Israel out of his land. You shall speak all specifically, accurately, that I tell you. We talked about that last week. Moses ad-libbed. He got a little bit into his own realm there instead of speaking what God wanted him to. But that was part of God's plan. We see here Moses is now ready to step up into this role and God is again pressing this on him and we will see how he responds. God says that you shall tell him to send the children out of the land. It's not simply to allow my people out. It's the word shalach and it means to cast them out, to push them out. Could you even imagine that? Here they are. Pharaoh is going to do everything he can to keep them there. They're his people. They're his slaves. Moses is saying, let my people go. And God says, he will. In fact, he will push them out. He will send them out. And then Yahweh says, and this is what I will do. Verse 3, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. It's a word we've seen a couple of times now. Yahweh will harden the king's heart. This word kazak, it depicts a heart that is obstinate, that is stubborn. Kazak comes from a root word that means the rebellious resistance of an oxen to the yoke. It did not want it upon itself. We used to heat our home with wood burning fireplace for over five years. We would go out and we would cut down these hedge trees and we found that they were not only really good intense heat for heating the home, but they were also extremely hard, extremely hard compared to most woods. And if you gave an old hedge tree, an Osage orange log years out there in the pasture, or you had a fence post that had been there for years, that thing became like steel. You couldn't even hardly drive a nail into it. This was the kind of heart residing in Pharaoh. And it continued to harden and harden. It could not be penetrated. And that hard heart yields the results we see in verse 4. But Pharaoh would not heed. So that I, God says, may lay my hand on Egypt and bring my armies and my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great judgments. Pharaoh will not heed. He will not. It's, the word means to listen intelligently. He will not respond. In fact, it will not even make sense, but he will not respond over and over again. He will be unable to comprehend that these Hebrew slaves are not his anymore. But they are, as God says in that verse, God's army. They are God's people. They are God's children. But this verse assures us that Yahweh's signs and wonders will not be lost on everyone. 
Isaiah 55 always reminds us. It says, So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I desire, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. God says that Egypt will see. They will know that I am God. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. When I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the children of Israel from among them. At least some of the Egyptians under Pharaoh's dominion will recognize God's hand even to the point of a soft heart. He will make himself known but it will actually transform some of his hearts there. One of the study Bibles indicates this. Some of the Egyptians did come to understand the meaning of the name Yahweh. For they responded appropriately to the warning of the seventh plague. That's from Exodus 9 verse 20. And we read there. He who feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh. Made his servants and his livestock flee to the houses. Seventh plague. They were tired of this. Everything is falling apart and being destroyed around them. They know Moses is speaking for God. This quote also goes on to say, And others accompanied Israel into the wilderness. Exodus 12 verse 37 says, Then the children of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sokoth, about 600,000 men on foot beside children. This is after all the plagues and they're leaving in the Exodus. And then in verse 38 it says, A mixed multitude went up with them also, and flocks and herds, a great deal of livestock. So we get the feeling there that not only did Israel leave Egypt, but some of the Egyptians and others came along with them. That quote goes on to say, in the final analysis, Egypt would not be able to deny the direct involvement of the God of Israel in their rescue from bondage and the destruction of Egypt's army. Hearing that then in verse 6, Moses and Aaron, it says, and look at that verse carefully, Aaron did so just as the Lord commanded them, so they did. What's the point of the verse? What is the example this verse is shouting at us with a triple barrel declaration? Obey. Obey. Prompt, specific, active obedience is demonstrated now by Aaron and Moses. And if you've been with us for the first six chapters, you'll realize that this has been a difficult thing. In the first point of contact with Yahweh, Moses wouldn't even take the first step of obedience. He argued. He resisted. But things are changing in the lives of these two men. They did so just as Yahweh commanded, so they did. And then we get a little insert here, some interesting information. It says, then Moses and Aaron, or excuse me, and Moses was 80 years old, and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Now this detail seems a little out of place, doesn't it? But actually, it's a landmark. It's a demarcation line where changed lives begin to go forth. Aaron and Moses are new men. And this age marks something important to them. Some commentators treat the age of 80 during Moses' day as sort of like the age of 50 for us today. And after all, Moses lived to 120 years of age. But Moses expressed his own view of 80 years of age in the one psalm that he wrote. Moses wrote one psalm. It was Psalm 90. And it's interesting that it would include in it a reference to the age of 80. Because that's when he began this battle against the Pharaoh. Psalm 90 verse 10 
written by Moses, says, The days of our lives are 70 years. And if by some reason of strength they are 80 years, yet their boast is only labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off and we will fly away. You see, by Moses' own standard, he was an old man. Typically, near the end of life. But this is what God does. God was not seeking a virile young man, successful and articulate. All that has been pointed out already as we've come to this point. Moses has failed miserably over and over again. He has spent the last 40 years doing what? Herding sheep, right. And they weren't his own sheep. It's not like he amassed this huge sheep farm. He was taking care of his father-in-law's sheep. Where? On the backside of a desert mountain. But God seeks those who are obedient and faithful so that he will be glorified. Now verse 8 introduces the opening salvo of the great conflict which will involve 11 specific battles in the war of Yahweh versus Satan. Yahweh with his two obscure ambassadors, Moses and Aaron, nobodies, against Satan and his demons masquerading as Egyptian gods and being represented by perhaps the most powerful man on the face of the earth at that time, Pharaoh, who is also a phony deity. Verse 8, Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, When Pharaoh speaks to you, saying, Show a miracle for yourselves, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your rod and cast it before Pharaoh, and let it become a serpent. Round 1, Swallowing the Serpent. This opening battle really sets the stage for everything that is to come. But why start, why start with a snake fight? Why would that be what would go on here? Well, you see, serpent worship was a powerful force in Egypt. The Egyptians had built a temple to honor the snake goddess Wajet. Some pharaohs actually believed she had bestowed her divine powers in them and had been the one that had placed them on the throne. Wajet was symbolized by the cobra. Ancient manuscripts indicate that as certain pharaohs were inaugurated to the throne, they actually repeated the following vow. O great one, O magician, O fiery snake, let there be terror of me like the terror of thee. Let there be fear of me like the fear of thee. Let there be awe of me like the awe of thee. Let me rule a leader of the living. Let me be powerful, a leader of spirits. The cobra and other snakes were literally worshipped and feared by Egyptians. So knowing this, Moses and Aaron go into Pharaoh. Verse 10, and they did so just as the Lord commanded. And Aaron cast down his rod before Pharaoh and before his servants, and it became a serpent. The serpent. It's an interesting word. In Exodus chapter 4 verse 13, where Yahweh first transformed a rod into a serpent, what he made there was a nakash. It was a snake. But 
The serpent that is transformed here in verse 10 is a much, much different creature. It is a tanim. And that is sometimes translated as dragon or a sea monster or a, a whale. One commentator translates it as a monstrous snake. Freetheim says that it was much more terrifying creature than any snake. Literally, tanim means a large, large reptile. So the creatures that Yahweh brings up in verse 10 through Aaron, as well as through the magicians, have greatly intensified in fierceness from what they had seen before. And, and as I was reading it, I wondered, I wondered when he threw that rod down. You know, the first time, Moses was frightened, wasn't he? And he ran. Then he picked it up as God commanded. What was he thinking when Aaron threw it down this time? And this huge reptile comes out, not just a snake. I think Aaron and Moses knew God was in control at this moment. But Pharaoh also called the wise men and the sorcerers. So the magicians of Egypt, they also did in like manner with their enchantments. Have, have, have you ever read a story or, or watched a movie or something and you see the villain falling right into the trap that's being laid for him? That is what's happening. Larson tells us, the magic was a main element of the Egyptian religion. And those who mastered these powers were held in high esteem. Through magical formulas, the magicians claimed to exercise the power of the gods. The master of magic, therefore, became a player in the world of the gods. We have wise men, we have sorcerers, we have magicians here. All of these men basically possessed a secret knowledge and they were trained in occultic practices. The enchantments that they employed were secret arts. They, the word actually means kept under wraps. Things that no one else could learn about. And they were successful. Verse 12. For every man threw down his rod and they became serpents. They actually became tanim as well. But Aaron's rod swallowed up their rods. You see what Yahweh by means of Moses and Aaron. And the use of supernatural signs. Challenged the serpent goddess Wajet. Now when we go through these plagues. One of the things we need to keep in mind is that each one is aimed at a particular god or, or idol of the people of Egypt. God just didn't, I think I'll do gnats this time or I'll use frogs or we'll do hail. No, he has, was very calculated and specific in each plague. And this starts it off. By baiting the magicians into mimicking his miraculous sign with their rods... Yahweh's Tanim literally swallows up the competition as nothing more than just snake food lying on the floor. To swallow something, the Egyptians believed, actually allowed you to obtain its power. The cannibalizing Tanim demonstrated the absolute superiority of Yahweh. But it produces this response. Verse 13, And Pharaoh's heart grew hard. And he did not heed them, as the Lord had said. You see, Pharaoh had likely challenged Moses and Aaron to produce a miracle to prove that they had any power worth paying attention to. Yahweh had predicted that in verse 9. Was the miracle impressive? Would you have been impressed? 
I think so. It was impressive. Did it change Pharaoh's heart? Not at all. And that is the way it still goes. 3,500 years later. Often men have said to me, Ah, God's going to have to show me some sort of miraculous sign if I'm ever going to believe He exists. The snake-eating reptile transformed out of a wooden stick at Pharaoh's request was just such a sign. But it did not soften Pharaoh's heart one bit. On the contrary, it grew hard. And those that make that same demand of God will be the same way. The way that the details of Moses and Aaron's ages are inserted in verse 7, which I mentioned earlier, signifies a point of great change for those two men. Moses is now a man of careful obedience and full faith in Yahweh. But verse 13 represents just the opposite in Pharaoh. He now is beginning a steep downhill dive that will soon bring the death of his own son, the destruction of his entire army, and the grieving of a whole nation bereft of all their firstborn sons. Verse 14 brings us to a transition here. It begins with the words, So the Lord said to Moses. This phrase will introduce each of the upcoming ten plagues. You will see that phrase over and over again. Guys, can you bring that up on the screen? As we are entering into the plagues, we're going to take a little bit of what you might call a high altitude view. And you probably can't see that very well from where you are. They're doing their best. But it's actually on the back side of your pages, I think. Is it? Okay, good. I just want to tell you a couple of things as we look at these. These are just details, facts. But I think it will give you some more understanding as we start to march through these plagues for the next several weeks. The plagues can actually be separated into three cycles. Then they culminate with the death of the firstborn. You have the first three, next three, and the third three. The first two plagues, look at this, in each set are announced beforehand to Pharaoh. The first plague of each set is warned of in the morning. The second plague from each set gives the instruction, go into Pharaoh. In the first set of three, the magicians attempt to use their enchantments to compete with the power of Yahweh. But in the third plague, they acknowledge this is the finger of God. In the second cycle of three, there is a distinction between the damage to Egypt and the protection of the Jews. In the first cycle of three, interestingly, Aaron, Aaron's use of the staff is what is where God puts his dis power on display through the use of Aaron's staff. There is no mention of a staff in the second cycle of three. And in the third cycle, it is the rod of Moses or his hand that signify the power of God. Now we'll discover a little bit more significance of those as we go. But I thought it would be good just to take a look at it overall and look down and see this is what's going to be happening in chapters 7 through 12. 
Verse 14. So the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hard. He refuses to let the people go. Round two. If I had a bell here like the box, I got ding, round two. Round two, desecrating the Nile. To desecrate means to treat with violent disrespect. It is the perfect word to describe how Yahweh attacks the great centerpiece of Egyptian life. You see, a hard heart does not simply sit there and just grow harder. Even in its deadness grows the toxic fruit of rebellion. Having been commanded by Yahweh to let my people go, Pharaoh flat out refuses. This prepares the fighting ring for round two. Verse 15, go to Pharaoh in the morning. When he goes out to the water, you shall stand by the river's bank to meet him. And the rod which was turned to a serpent, you shall take in your hand. God orders Moses, equipped with the rod, to intercept Pharaoh down by the river the next morning. Now some speculate that Pharaoh would routinely go to the river at the beginning of each day to perform religious rituals to the false gods of the Nile. Idols like Hapai, the god of the flood, and Kanum, the guardian of the Nile. That is why the Nile was regarded as a sacred waterway of the land. An ancient Near Eastern text even contains this line from an Egyptian hymn. Hail to thee, O Nile, that issues from the earth and comes to keep Egypt alive. The Nile River. And you shall say to him, The Lord God of the Hebrews has sent me to you, saying, Let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But indeed, until now, you would not hear. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. The bloody Nile. It is clear what this is about, isn't it? It is so that Pharaoh will be faced with the fact that Yahweh is the Lord. And its nature will be that Aaron will strike the water which is in the river and with that rod in his hand it shall be turned to blood. The mighty Nile will be transformed by Yahweh into blood. Now, as odd as it seems to our western sensibilities, Every commentator that I read makes it absolutely clear that this is not simply reddish pollution or red dirt that was washed down at a flooding time of the season. Nor is it some sort of a red algae bloom that would have turned the color of the river, river into red. No, it says over and over again the word dam, and it literally means blood. And its devastating effect is that the fish that are in the river shall die, the river shall stink, and the Egyptians will loathe to drink the water of the river. You see, the prestige, the beauty, the supernatural Nile will be destroyed. The plague also reaches far beyond the great river. Its scope is massive. In verse 19, then the Lord said to Moses, Take your rod and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their streams, over their rivers, over their ponds, and over all the pools of water, that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, both in the buckets of wood and pitchers of stone. No surface water will be untouched. And seven days, excuse me, and the kingdom would be transformed 
into this putrid, deadly blood. In verse 20, this becomes reality. And Moses and Aaron did so just as the Lord commanded. So he lifted up the rod, struck the waters that were in the river, in the sight of Pharaoh, in the sight of his servants. And all the waters that were in the river were turned to blood. The fish that were in the river died. The river stank. And the Egyptians could not drink the water of the river. So there was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. The beautiful Nile. Three characteristics. Now, death, stench, and loathsome taste. Far from being the river of life, it is a stinking sea of dead floating fish carcasses. It's supposed supernatural powers to refresh at the drop of the rod became undrinkable. Yahweh has suddenly devastated the greatest deity of Egypt. The great Nile is now repulsive to the eye, the nose, and to the tongue. Now I ask you, could it get any uglier? I suppose it could if the same desolation were repeated by others. Verse 22. Then the magicians of Egypt did so with their enchantments. And Pharaoh's heart grew hard, and he did not heed them as the Lord had said. You see, the magicians are stumbling in this war with the supernatural. First their tanim was devoured by the tanim of God. Now the only thing they do is add to the mystery that Yahweh, add to the misery that Yahweh has created. Has this accomplished anything for Pharaoh? Decades ago, a good friend and a very talented defensive back on our high school football team made a tremendous pass interception against our opponent. It was so impressive because immediately after intercepting the ball, he was hit hard by the opposing team and it sent him spinning around and a couple of times, and, but he was still on his feet and he didn't drop the ball. And finally, getting his balance, he raced to the end zone, attempting to score a badly needed touchdown for us. Problem was, after getting hit so hard and spun around a few times, he lost orientation on the field. The end zone he raced to and successfully reached was our opponent's, not ours. My friend thought he was doing something heroic, but it only added to the efforts of our rival. I remember him coming back as we're all running after him. And he's so excited. And yes, he's, but he hadn't known what had happened. The magicians did something all right, but it only hurt their cause. And they thought, look what I'm doing. Pharaoh, I, I wondered, it makes you wonder what Pharaoh must have been thinking. As once again, he watched his top wise men turn into bumbling fools. Have you ever heard of the Keystone Cops? These were the Keystone Magicians. Pharaoh, it says, turned and went into his house. Neither was his heart moved by this. So all the Egyptians dug all around the river for water to drink because they could not drink the water of the river. And seven days passed after the Lord had struck the river. All the Egyptians... Becoming very thirsty as that week wore on, they all got out their shovels and began to dig. And the only fresh drinking water 
that Yahweh graciously provided for them was found with hard work underneath the ground. I would guess that this phrase, all the Egyptians, was meant to describe how widespread the hardship and inconvenience was. But I truly doubt that Pharaoh was found with a shovel in his hand. Perhaps that would have been what he needed. Work that would have hardened his hands and softened his heart. But what do we do with this? What do we do with a snake fight and a bloody river? What, what, what difference does this mean to us as Tanim, uh, the gods of the Nile? I'd like to call attention to at least three points of conclusion. First of all, Yahweh called Moses to obedience, not accomplishment. That is very, very important. We learn from Moses if we focus on the accomplishments of our obedience or the accomplishments of our ministry, we will be sorely disappointed. Yahweh had graciously told Moses that he was in control of Pharaoh and that Pharaoh would not respond. And yet, Moses was sorely disappointed when that didn't come to pass. Pharaoh would only respond when and if Yahweh moved the king's heart. One fellow wrote, Spiritual results are always beyond human control. No matter how eloquent he is, and no matter how persuasive, there is nothing a prophet can do to make people believe God's word. Do you believe that? And yet we prophesy, yep, and I don't mean to tell the future, I mean to proclaim the good news, proclaim the word of God. Because we are commanded to do so, but the heart will only be changed just as God determines. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, And I, brethren, when I came to you, I did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. You see the message of what we're hearing from, Mo from Paul is the same as Moses. Paul was a humble man. Do you think he was lying when he said, I was with you in weakness, in fear, and much trembling? He wasn't. And yet we often picture Paul coming in, a man that would have been full of confidence because of all he'd been through and how God had used him, how well he knew the word. But he was a humble man and he relied on God completely. In fact, he says of his old credentials, they're a pile of dung. Moses' task and ours too is to faithfully obey. The Lord will bring about His will and He will allow us to participate as His ambassadors. What a privilege that is. But He will do the work. Secondly, when confronted with the knowledge of the Lord, men and women either do Moses or they do Pharaoh. They do Moses and they surrender and submit in obedience. Or they do Pharaoh by going their own way and hardening their hearts. And I would tell you, even ambivalence and apathy are ways to harden and it results in increasing sin and distance from God. You see, Moses and Pharaoh, they, they are not fictitious literary figures created to make a point. I went online 
to look something up and, and I googled something about the magicians and the plagues and the first thing that pops up says well the, the magicians, magicians didn't do anything because that's a fictitious story and none of that ever happened. I thought what a tragedy. This supposed expert is going on and trying to, to discredit the word of God and he is missing the power of God. But they are real men who once lived and they were two men who responded in completely different direction to the knowledge of God. One turned closer to the Lord God through difficulties and failures and the other further and further toward rebellion and sin. Now, I know you might think, well, I'm never going to lead the nation of God with two million people out of slavery. Nor will I ever rule a mighty empire and chase after my slave people only to meet my doom in the bottom of the sea. And I think you're right. But the decisions you make and the character that you foster, for example, pride versus humility, faith versus unbelief, Obedience versus rebellion. All of these will lead to your final destination in life. Hebrews 3 verse 12. It's a strong New Testament warning about the hardness of heart. Beware brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. I could stand here and list evangelical celebrities people that we would know and from the past dear family members whose sin continued and finally hardened their hearts this is a warning beware brethren lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God but exhort one another daily what is called today lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Exhort one another. Exhort one another. Speak to each other. If you see something amiss or, or, or a, a sin or a question in your heart, in love, speak to each other. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. While it is said, today if you will hear his voice, today if you will hear his voice, do not Harden your heart as in the rebellion. That's not just Old Testament stuff. That is particularly out of the book of Hebrews, New Testament stuff. But that is 2023 stuff. Even to his own 12 disciples, Jesus said. This is to those guys who walked with him day and night. He said, take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they reasoned among themselves saying, it is because we have no bread. But Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, Why do you reason because you have no bread? Do you not perceive nor understand? Is your heart still hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of fragments did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. Also, when I broke the seven for the four thousand, how many large baskets full of fragments did you take up? And they said, seven. So he said to them, how is it do you not understand? You see, they had seen, they had experienced God's mighty work firsthand, right in front of their eyes. They had tasted that bread. 
the miraculous food he had created. They had watched him walk across this lake as this storm was raging around them. They had seen him deliver men with fierce demons, legions of demons on the shores of Gadaria. They had watched him raise the dead back to life. Yet he asks them, is your heart still hardened? Do you not remember? A few weeks ago, Phil mentioned this. And I asked, were the disciples there themselves on the verge of unbelief because they had forgotten God, forgotten what God had done, and forgotten what God promised? What does Jesus say to those disciples? Do you not remember? Recall. Beware, be on guard. Draw near to God and He will draw near to you, wrote James. And finally, this boils down to a war. There is a war taking place all around us. Not simply the war in Gaza. Not simply the war in Ukraine. We are seeing men and women defeated on the streets of Wichita daily. We are seeing men and women have victory daily. But there is definitely a war going on. The conflict of Exodus is far more than just a skirmish between a belligerent political dictator than a religious man claiming authority from God. Sometimes we criticize a term like war as being too extreme or over the top. But war and battle are common words used in the Bible to describe the life we live. Paul wrote this in 2 Corinthians 10. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. That did not end in the first century. Romans 7.23 But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. Ephesians 6.12 for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. Take up the whole armor of God. Why? So that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand. This is so vitally serious. And yet we find it so difficult to squeeze in a few minutes to get to the sword of the Spirit. Or to pour out our hearts to Christ for our lost neighbor or our lost son. Or our own struggle against sin. This is war. War has casualties. And Jesus speaks much about casualties. Romans 8.35 who shall separate us from the love of Christ? These will happen. He says, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword. What I see from that is he's not saying these things simply won't happen. They can't separate you. He's saying they will happen and it will not separate you. As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet... In all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. You see, Yahweh has won the war with the decisive death of Jesus Christ. God's Son, 
on the cross as full payment for our sins. If you repent and trust, your sins have been paid for in full by the Son of God Himself personally. He has taken that from you. The victory was sealed then with the resurrection. The resurrection from the dead by that same Savior Jesus who shared this conquest of death to all his followers. As the earlier demand from Hebrews stated, beware, beware. Beware of the deceitfulness of sin. There is a danger around us because of unbelief and continued sin. That petrified, hardened to a stone the heart of Pharaoh. Don't let that happen to you. If you are struggling with an ongoing sin, repent and trust in Christ. Come. We are here to help each other. The Bible says we come, literally, that we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. That doesn't mean you have to put on a shiny, happy face to look like you've got it together. We come and we fight the war together. We fight the battle because the enemy desires to destroy. We need each other. We need Christ. A warning of the danger of a heart like Pharaoh and then an exhortation to have a heart like Moses. James in chapter 4 wrote, Therefore submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hearts, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament, mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be torn to mor- turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. I want, want this to be fully balanced and understood that I'm not proclaiming a, a works-based salvation. We come to Christ because he loved us while we were still sinners. He saved us when we were in the depths of our depravity, choosing to love us and putting his son on the cross with the sins of all who would trust in him. His resurrection conquered death for all who walk with him. And it is not accomplished by anything that we do. And yet the Bible clearly tells us, beware, be on guard, for we have an enemy. We have a battle. And we will walk through this as we see Moses in the hand of God battling time and time again. So the people will know who the Lord God is. And I pray that that's what you all will be about. Those of you who know him. That it will be desire when you get out of bed that you will desire to make that day a day where you proclaim who Yahweh is, who the Lord Jesus Christ is to this lost world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word, this word of God, not mine. Lord, you know whatever was superfluous or out of, out of there, out of sync, please remove that from anyone's thoughts or hearts. But Lord, may this word of God, this truth, penetrate and, and catch us on fire. Give us a zeal for you, Lord, that we would be ready to live and to die for the sake of Jesus Christ to make you known that the world will know that you are the Lord God. In your name we pray, amen.